How are you all doing? It feels kind of, it feels kind of disparate in this room. It feels kind of like lots of little conversations going on. And when it's time, it's time to hear from God's word. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Oh, now we're on, now we're all on the same page. My name is Steph, one of the leaders here. It's really lovely to be with you tonight in the presence of Jesus and to uh, be changed by him. Um, we are starting our new series, um, which uh, God willing is going to take us right through to September. So it's going to be quite a long one for us. Normally we do like a series of four weeks or six weeks. This is um, kind of four months. <laughs> We're going to go through the book in the Bible that's called 1 Corinthians. So if you do have a Bible with you, then it may be worth turning to that. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, it's, in the, it's, it's about sort of uh, three quarters of the way through and a little bit more. If you're getting lost, shout out where you are and I'll tell you where to go. Oh, yeah, there's always the clever ones in the house. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Matt's in the book of Noah. Okay. So, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, because obviously... A lot of these books of the Bible were written thousands of years ago in a culture thousands of miles away and it can be, can be quite hard to connect sometimes and to feel, that, feel connected so sometimes a bit of information helps. Corinthians, why is it called that? It's because it was written to people who lived in a city called Corinth. Where's Corinth? Well, if you look on a map and atlas at Greece and if you go to Athens, then you'll find that just west, about 40 kilometres west of Athens, there's a very thin um, peninsula or isthmus or whatever word you want to use to describe it, a very thin strip of land that, uh, that is right in between the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea, uh, which then goes into what they call the uh, Peloponnese, which is a kind of a, the bottom lump of Greece, if you like. But it only happens through this very thin strip of land, about five miles wide. Corinth is bang in the middle of there. Now today... Corinth is a few kind of pillars growing up from some grass. That's really all that's left of it. But then it was a very, very influential city. Obviously, you can imagine with the Ionian Sea there and the Aegean Sea there, the traders would come and they would be able to park up and just travel the five miles and then head west or, or the opposite direction. So it's a centre for trade and commerce. Not only so, it also was the home of the Temple of Venus, the Greek uh, goddess. Was she Roman? Venus was a Roman goddess, right? Yeah. Yes, sorry. The Roman goddess of love. Uh, as a result, the, the city was very, very well uh, famous, infamous, if you like, notorious even for sexual promiscuity um, to the extent that if you wanted to slander someone, to speak badly of them because of their sexual promiscuity, you'd call them a Corinthian. You know, whereas today you might say you slut or something like that. In those days, it was you're Corinthian. That's what it meant. It meant you are sexually promiscuous, you are sexually immoral. Such was the reputation of the city. It was a very diverse city, uh, filled with uh, Gentiles, Jews, um, Romans, Greeks, all sorts really gathered there. It was also uh, uh, very much uh, a place of intellectual development and philosophy. So it's all happening in Corinth, okay? Corinth, in a, from a worldly kind of point of view, 
was the place to be. It was a magnet of all kinds of people. In some ways, not dissimilar from London. In some ways, there would be similarities to it in terms of its magnetic effect. So that was, that's the city of Corinth, and that's the setting. So really, why is Paul writing to a group of Christians here? Well, because a few years before he wrote this letter, Paul himself went there to establish a church. Now, it, it didn't start off well. He went to the synagogues to reach the Jews, and they didn't like what they, what, what they were hearing. And so they turned against him. So Paul did a very kind of Jewish thing of shaking out his cloak, which basically is his way of saying, right, you lot, you know, you've had your chance. And then he went to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, ironically, to a man who lived next to the synagogue, and started preaching Christ there. Many Gentiles became Christians, and then the Jews, out of envy, stir up a kind of a city-wide riot, if you like, which was at that point dismissed by the ruler of Corinth, who was renowned for his justice and his humility and his integrity. He dismissed it, and as a result, the gospel was allowed to prosper in the area. Paul then moved on, and then shortly after that came a guy called Apollos, who was another apostolic Christian leader, very eloquent, very charismatic, and an amazing teacher. And he, we're told, publicly refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating that this Jesus really was the Messiah, and also uh, strengthen the saints. And then it seems that he moved on. And then it seems that a group of Jews from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, came along and got involved with the church there. And we get some difficulties begin to happen at that point in the church. Um, and so really, uh, out of those difficulties, Paul writes the letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. So we're going to just look at the first 13 verses to begin with. I'm going to read to you. Um, Here we go. Let's read the word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you was enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's there's quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Let's read on actually down to verse 17. Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you was baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lord, we pray for real help in this message tonight. 
pray that God, you would make this thing live by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, I just want to declare now that my uh, confidence is not in words of eloquence, but in the Spirit's power. And I pray for the power of the Spirit to be uh, at work in mighty ways in people's hearts. Please. Into the very seat of our affections and desires and into the depths of who we are. I pray for the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. I pray and ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the amazing gospel, this amazing good news of Christ crucified into hearts and lives, perhaps, Lord, to a degree that people have never felt before. I pray for amazing impact of the gospel tonight. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, just a little bit, a, few, a little list of the problems in, Corinth, in the Corinthian church. I mean, if you, if you think, you know, I'm sure you don't, but maybe you're here and you think, you know, this church has got, this is wrong about it. Don't like this about it. Okay, stop. Just be glad you weren't part of the church in Corinth. What have we got there? Well, poor old Paul, who started the church, they're all turning against him, a lot of them, questioning whether really he's got what it takes to be a Christian leader. There's a guy in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. We've got people getting involved in uh, kind of religious services devoted to idols and feasts around idolatry. We've got rich and poor in the church, which is a good thing, but the rich in this church worked short hours, if any. The poor worked long hours, and when they got together for what they call their love feast, which is when they would all get together and eat food together and break the bread and drink the wine together, what would happen is the rich would get there early because they finished work. They would get stuffed on the food and drunk on the wine, and then the poor guys get in there later, there'd be nothing left for them. We've got Christian meetings where everyone is speaking in different languages or the gift of tongues at the same time, it seems, trying to get themselves heard. No one can understand what's being said. No one's interpreting the messages in tongues. There's no order in the place. To the extent that Paul says, I'm fearful that your gatherings cause more harm than good. And now there's a group that are denying Jesus was raised from the dead. (laughs) Aren't you grateful for Revelation Church? (laughs) If nothing else, take that away with you. We're doing all right. But here's the interesting thing. There's also division in the church. And what I find surprising is that Paul challenges that one first. If you were Paul, what would you hit first? For me, it wouldn't be that. I, I want to go in on the resurrection, I think. Or the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. I'm going to go. I'm going to nail that guy first. I say, dear Corinthians, hello. Oi! <laughs> Stop it, you know. No, not so, Paul. There's this commendation filled with Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. He's saying, you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's remarkable. Have they? <laughs> well, yeah, they have. It's immature believers. And sometimes we can be so idealistic, you know. Next time at a prayer meeting you pray, Lord, let it be like the early church. Just remember Corinth. <laughs> let's not be unreal, idealistic. Okay, let's just... It's a mistake to be like that. Let's be, let's be growing and mature and sober. So, but Paul comes in and hits this division in the church. And tonight I want to speak about division in the church. I want to speak about unity in the church. And I hope that you'll find it incredibly helpful. 
and, and Christ-centered, and it will, it, will, it, will, it will lift your heads to the wonder of what Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross and resurrection once again. Now, why is this division such a big deal? Number one, where there's division, there's a leadership problem, always. You see it even politically. If there's problems with the leadership, with the government, very soon what follows that is a power struggle. Am I right? Different factions or tribes or groups, suddenly, they, you didn't see them before, the, the, the country is being governed well, suddenly there's a, there's a power vacuum, the, the, the leadership is like, well, leadership's in trouble, all of a sudden, we see people coming through, beginning to say, rally to me, gather to me. When there's division in the church, the leadership of Jesus Christ over the church has been ignored. Paul didn't lead the Corinthian church. The elders, although they've been delegated by Jesus Christ to govern, were not the leader. Jesus leads the church. It's his church. He's the head of the church. Okay? I do not lead Revelation Church. Jesus Christ leads Revelation Church. It is not my church. I'm a member of this church. He is the leader and the head and the senior pastor of this church. And if ever that is lost or lost, you lose sight of that or it becomes sidelined in some way or just we start saying things like, yeah, we know that, but that's taken as red or you start having that kind of attitude, trouble will begin. Because you'll begin to focus on particular people. Well, I like it when they preach. Their style moves me more. You know, or I like it when, when they lead. They just feel like more of a connection. And you begin to subtly, subtly begin to move around and say, oh, I won't go this Sunday because that one's, that one's leading the praise. Or that one's preaching. I'm, I'm not really, I'm, I'm with that one. And you forget, no, 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 we gather to Christ. We gather to Jesus. We don't gather to Andy or Steph. But we gather to Jesus. That's why we really make this thing week after week. These guys aren't leading. They're helping. Holy Spirit's leading. He points to Jesus, who's the leader of the church. It's very important. If, you get, if that's your mentality, if you're getting into particular Christian leaders and you love them and all you ever talk about, Bill Johnson, Mark Driscoll, Tim Keller, John Piper, Jesus! Yes. <laughs> talk about him. Be excited about him. Benefit from the ministry of these others, but it's about Jesus. This is very, very important and central, as you can tell. I'm normally sweating at this point in the sermon. So it must be an important moment that we started off with here. Secondly, if the church is the body of Christ, which it is, and there's division, there's going to be a lot of pain in that body. That body is not going to be able to do what it's supposed to do. It won't be able to move with the um, athleticism that it ought to do. It won't be able to move with the speed and the skill that it ought to do. There will be things that are out of joint so that the body hobbles along. Let's just, let's just go biological for a moment. You know, if something is out of joint and you don't get it sorted, you are, you are very aware, aren't you, of that problem? Yeah? I remember once I sprained my ankle very seriously playing basketball. It was an amazing shot. should have seen it. But then I came down and I heard this ripping sound. And yeah, it was really nasty. And the ankle just went... And, uh, and it was agony. Six, six weeks on crutches. Do you know that over those six weeks, I was very aware of my ankle. Since then, I haven't really been. You just get on with it. But I was very aware of it. Why? There was an injury there. Something was not right there. 
Likewise in the body of Christ. If relationships are out of kilter because the Bible says that we're all different parts, all joined together. If that's out of kilter, it, it, it becomes emphasised unhelpfully. Or it becomes an area of weakness. Or it's like, oh well, I would go to that thing for the church is doing, but I know so and so is going to be there. And we had a bit of a bust up the other month, and we haven't really sorted it. It just becomes, it's an area of weakness, it's a niggle, it's not been healed. It's not been healed. If, I, if something's out of joint, I'm not going to just, well, I won't make do. No, I'm going to get it sorted. You say, well, time's a healer. No, no. You've got to get it sorted. Now, in relationships, it's exactly the same. You've got to sort it. I, we have been so blessed and spared as a church in the four years we've been going, so blessed in this area of unity. People come along and they say to me, I can feel the unity in this place. And it's funny, I've never preached on it before, but they stay remarkably. It's like you're all going together. We've been so, so blessed. Now, what are the reasons for that? Well, hopefully we make a big deal about Jesus, and so people understand he's in charge, and it keeps us from petty little factions. But I think also we've spoken quite hard and quite strongly about if you're out of a relationship with someone, go and speak with them. Do not just start spreading it around with others and create a gossip group. No, go, do what Jesus, our leader, told us to do. If your brother sins against you, go and speak to them and look to reconcile it. Don't pretend it's okay. Don't brush it under the carpet. Don't deny you're actually hurt. No, that person has wronged you. They don't. Go and speak to them. Look to reconcile it. If they won't listen to you, take someone else along. If they still won't listen to you, Bring it before the church. If then they won't listen to you, ask them to leave the church until they are willing to reconcile. Why? Because if, if you allow them to stay with willful irreconciliation in their heart, they will destroy the body. It's that serious. That's what Jesus says. I've, I've had the privilege over these last few years of um, being in Revelation Church, of being corrected and pulled up by brothers and sisters more than in any other church I've ever been in. And I thank God for it. I thank God for those brave men and women that have come up to me and said, Steph, you know, when you said that, I said that was unhelpful, and here's why. I think, thank you. And I tried to make a point of thanking them as well as apologising and getting right. And if that's happened to you, I tell you, if it's receive it, that is life. What does David say? He speaks about the rebuke of a godly man. He says, it's like oil on my head. And then he speaks about the ungodly, and he's like, he's like trying, to, trying to correct them, he's like trying to grasp stinging nails or thistles. <laughs> I won't do that again. It's really important stuff, guys. Really, really important stuff. It's a big deal. So, so how does Paul deal with it? I want to just show you three ways he deals with it. Let's do that. Let's apply it ourselves, and we'll guard the unity among us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's go to uh, chapter 3. Now, at this point, chapter 3, what happened to chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 1? Let me explain. Paul, as a writer, has this very hard style. Anyone ever find Paul's writings hard to understand? You're in good company. The Apostle Peter did too. Peter, in his letter, says Paul's writings are hard to understand. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and Paul never got a chance to respond, and it's not in the Bible. So poor on Paul. But anyway, Peter's great. Peter's this simple guy, fisherman. You know, Paul, uh, much more of an intellectual. Paul loves the parenthesis. Oh, What's the parenthesis? Here's the parenthesis. The other day, I took the kids swimming to Archway. Archway pool's amazing, you know. It's got slides and everything. And we had a good time. 
The parenthesis was the bit in the middle, okay? So I said I took the kids swimming to Archway. It triggered something in my mind. Archway's amazing. They got slides and everything. Then I carried on with what I was saying. We had a good time. Paul does that all through his letters, but he puts parenthesis on parenthesis. And before you know it, you think, flip, I don't know where, what's going on here, okay? So now you'll find with the first three or four chapters of Corinthians, it's like, pop, 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 pop. it's parenthesis city, all right? And, there's, and so it's kind of like he, he covers the theme of division, and immaturity, and then on top of that, he's covering the theme of uh, power, and on top of that, he's covering the theme of wisdom, and all of it is soaked in Jesus. So the way we're going to handle this is today is division, and then next couple of weeks look at wisdom and power. Is that cool? Yeah. So just hope you understand why I'm doing it this way. Okay, so let's go to chapter three, verse one, um, where we look at the first four verses for point one. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid foods, because you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Point number one, to deal with to deal with division and immaturity, know this, Christian, you are not merely human. So what the heck are you? <laughs> I'm not a human. You, know, you are a human, but you're not merely a human. And let me explain. You are a human. You shouldn't need me to really preach this and unpack this for hours. Okay? We're not cyborgs. We are humans. Uh, what does the Bible mean? By, just to give you, what is, what is it biblically to be human? You were made in the image of God. Very amazing and glorious. You've, been, you've fallen and been corrupted from that into sin, really through inheriting the sin of Adam and for your own sins. You've fallen and so you're a sinner. Now what does it mean? Because it's a very emotive word, sinner. I hate that word. Preachers talk about sinners. It really just means that there's a bent within you towards really not loving and following the Lord, but towards doing those things that he dislikes. Or put it another way, there is a bent in you towards worshipping created things instead of worshipping the creator. Okay? That's what it means to be a sinner. So uh, what else does it mean? It means you're frail. It means you're frail. It means you're a complex mix of frailty. And, uh, you, you, you know, you are walking contradiction. This is what it is to be human. The Bible describes it as a jar of clay. You're like a jar of clay. It's not really that impressive. It's kind of earthenware. A few chips, a few cracks, worn use. You're a jar of, cray, a jar of clay. So you're human. But you're not merely human. Christian, Christian, you are not merely human. Those of you that aren't Christians, you are merely human. What am I saying? I'm saying this. I'm saying that in the act of becoming a Christian, God does something incredible and miraculous. It's described with different imagery throughout the Bible. Imagery like this. Your heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in. A heart that beats with love for God is put in. It's a miracle that God does. You are born again. You were that, now you're this. You did have that bent towards turning away from God, now through being born again, your deepest desire and cry of your heart is to love him. Okay? Different imagery is used. Or, there's a treasure now in this jar of clay. So even through the crack in that jar of clay, there's this incredible light shining out. What is that? There's this tree. You look in the top, what is that? It's the very presence of the living God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
You are indwelt by the living God. There is incredible treasure in you. You are not merely human. Paul is saying that it is merely human to have division. It is merely human to have strife. It is merely human to have jealousies. But you're not merely human. So don't do it. Know and understand who you are. You are a brand new creation in Christ. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's how Paul deals with it. He doesn't just try and get them to work harder. He says, no, remember who you are. Think about who God has made you. Ponder what you are now, this walking miracle. There's no natural accounting for you if you're a born-again Christian. There's no natural accounting for you. It's a miracle that has happened. Let's move on to verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Actually, I need to explain what happened here, probably with the factions. Who are the guys that really love Paul? Probably the Gentiles in the church. Why? Because Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. He was the guy who said, you know what? We haven't got to do all that circumcision and Jewish stuff now. You're saved by grace. And the Gentiles were like, yeah, loved it. Okay? As you would. <laughs> the guys who loved Apollos were probably the ones who just loved a bit of eloquence. Maybe that, maybe that you're like that. You love, you love hearing Barack Obama. You love hearing him. You know, he's an orator, isn't he? Apollos was an incredible orator. When he spoke, it was like poetry, like music. He, you know, it was like sort of just silk coming out, you know. And you can imagine people saying, you know, yeah, because apparently Paul wasn't that impressive at speaking. You find there's these charges against him throughout his epistles that he has to respond to. And he says things like, well, I might not be that impressive at speaking, but I'll tell you what, God's called me, you know. And he, <laughs> you do get, he, he, he wouldn't have been necessarily the guy, you know, the Charles Spurgeon that would have drawn thousands. That wasn't Paul. Apollos, absolutely. So it probably would have been those eloquent sort of types. Oh, yeah. Cephas. Who's Cephas? Well, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. So it seems like the guys, that Jewish crowd who came from Jerusalem, they rocked up at Corinth at the church and said, who started your church? Paul. Who? Paul. Who's he? He's not one of the twelve. We, we, we're aligned with one of the twelve. Peter, Cephas, he's the real deal. So they came in. And then the guys, this is the funny one, the guys who are arm of Christ, it seems like there was a certain crowd who looked at this arm of Paul lot, looked at this arm of Apollos lot, looked at this arm of Cephas lot and just said, do you know what, you lot can't be saved. We're of Christ. <laughs> We're the real Christians in this church. They're the worst lot of all. You meet someone like that, steer clear of them. You can spot them a mile off. Here's how you spot them. They never last more than two or three months in the church because no, no one's up to their standard. No one's up to their spiritual level. No one's, no one's receiving what they're receiving, you know, from the Lord. You know, you sp- that's what they're like. And they really, in their hearts, are looking around thinking, I'm really not sure this lot are with the Lord. I'm just different from these guys. This is, I'm the of Christ lot. And uh, they're getting nailed just as much as everyone else, okay? It wasn't, no, it, this isn't a good thing. It's the guys who are spiritually superior, okay? So that's what's going on. Okay, so verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, in the sense they're working together, and each one will receive his wages according to his labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, 
you are God's building. Okay, number one, you are not merely human. Number two, you are God's field. You are God's building. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. In what sense? Well, in the sense that this Corinthian church, they weren't Paul's field. Oh, Paul, Paul planted the church. No, no. God's field. God's building. So, where does Paul and Apollos fit? Well, here's how it is. It's like God says, looks at Corinth and says, I want to have a church there. We'll get Paul in to do a bit of sewing. And uh, we'll get Apollos in. He can water it a bit. And I am going to bring some growth. God brings the growth to his people. God brings the growth to his church. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now, you say, well, why am I, why am I emphasizing this? Here's why. If you get that, then you will not become sidetracked, like I said at the start, by particular ministries, particular leaders or preachers. You will be very much intoxicated and aware of the grandeur of the fact that you are his building. You are his field. He is at work in you. He will use people, but they're just servants. No one's indispensable. You've got to understand that. No Christian is indispensable. God most definitely is indispensable. Let me say this. You are God's field in. He is cultivating you. You are God's, you are God's field. He is nurturing. You are God's field, which means this. And this is plural. You are God's field. Okay, So it's the church. Revelation church. You are God's field. Do you know, I've, I've, I've noticed something about fields. You want to hear my field observation? Yeah. Farmers' fields go through seasons. It tends to be at the start where it's kind of like hard ground. At that point, what has to happen? Turn that ground over, either manually or you set a machine in motion that turns the thing over. Then what? Once you've done that, you can sow your seed. Then you have to water it, then the growth comes. Let me just say this is churches, we go through seasons. As a church, we are going through a season. I don't think we're going through a particularly easy season, if I'm honest with you. I think we're going through a challenging season. I think there's something going on at the moment which I think is a little bit like someone getting a spade and going, and going, and turning the thing over. Now, why do I say that? I say that for a number of reasons. Obviously, Jesus leads this church, but obviously at the moment I play a key part in serving him and we're going through a tough season. It's just hard. We know God's grace in it, we know God's joy in it, but it's hard. I know a lot of you are facing immense pressure regarding exams. You are working very, very hard and you just feel like you are living in this weird bubble where you're just looking for that end deadline. But you're hibernating, revising, working, working hard. I know many of you are facing serious personal challenges. It's just one of those seasons. What's going on? Ah, quick, get a new pastor. You can if you want, but that's probably not going to solve it. What's the thing? What do we do? What, what do we do? Well, you let the one who owns you as his field, turn you over. Okay? And then, and then what he'll do is, he'll use me and many others to just kind of sprinkle seeds. People come and sprinkle seeds, and then wonderful growth and harvest will come. It will. You say, well, how can I say? Well, because we're God's field. And that's what, that's what he does with the field. He brings harvest. So you can, be, you can rest assured and be confident that will but sit in the season. Or imagine it, you're God's building. It's another illustration. You know, sometimes you look at builders on the building and think, man alive, I'm glad someone knows what they're doing. I mean, sometimes I see people digging up roads. I think, why are you digging up that road? And they don't know. They don't know why. They said, well, we were told to. 
thankfully there is someone somewhere with a plan. <laughs> He's sitting there and says, we need to dig that up because we're going to do this. Listen, God is the great architect. We are his building. He knows what he is doing with us. He knows what he's doing with his church. And he will build it well. This will take your eyes off of weird ideas and people and it will lift you up to understand God is mightily, powerfully, zealously at work in your life individually and the life of his church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Finally, let's go to verse 21 of chapter 3. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's a pretty big statement. Did you just hear what Paul That's a pretty big statement that he just read there. Um, it's not the kind of statement that you sort of write in, you just kind of write to people, you know, all, all things are yours, you know, but death and life, what? What's, what on earth is he saying here? Well, remember the context? Let no one boast in men. Why? 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 Because men are really small. Have you noticed that? Men and women, people, they're really small. They're really finite. Have you ever noticed how the closer you get to someone, uh, except the Lord, the closer you get, the more disappointing they are? Anyone notice that? They look really impressive. You ever notice that? Boyfriends and girlfriends. Wow, look at them walking in the room. It's amazing. You know, I've got to get to know them. Right, okay. Now, great. At some point, you will be disappointed. Because when they walked into the room, the picture of perfection, that first time, you see, fellas, on that night, they weren't having a bad hair day. On that night, they didn't have stomach flu. <laughs> on that night, they didn't have PMT. Ladies, on the night when you saw that really impressive guy, handsome, cool, Charming, godly. <laughs> he was having a good day. It just all came together that day. No, we don't. There's no explanation. It all just came together that day. And uh, you know, you stick around for a few years, it may happen again. But uh, <laughs> you know, people are very, very unimpressive. Uh, I am very unimpressive. Um, uh, you know, famous people actually are very unimpressive. There is someone who's very impressive. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is extraordinary. And uh, he will never let you down. And he will never disappoint. And the closer you get, the more amazing he becomes. Uh, which is why to spend an eternity with him is really cool and not really boring. Okay? Because he's eternal and infinite. And so it's almost like you can search out his glories forever and be increasingly excited and amazed forever because he's eternal and infinite. And so, and so, hallelujah, we haven't got a boast in men. Hallelujah. And, ha what, and, and hallelujah that we have been joined with this Jesus. We belong to him and everything's his. And so everything's ours. And so what happens is, is that our hearts and our minds can become big. 
And we can be released and liberated from the tininess of ourselves and our own little preferences and our own little likes and dislikes and even the horrors of our own little paranoias and insecurities and fears and disappointments and pains. And we can be lifted into something big and glorious and eternal. Why? Because we're in Him. We've been swallowed up in Him. And it doesn't mean we don't experience pain or disappointment, all these other things, but ultimately there's something much bigger and much better going on. All things are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how Paul deals with division in the church. He says you are not merely human. By an incredible work of grace, you've been born again. You are not who you were, and you never can be. He says, you are God's field, you are God's building. God is looking over you, cultivating you, nurturing you, putting you together very carefully and very deliberately. And he says, everything's yours. Everything's yours. How so? Well, because you're Christ's. How are you Christ? Because you've been joined to Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, if you come to Jesus, you are joined with him through faith. The Bible says that you die with him. Through his death on the cross, you are crucified with him. Where he died and was punished for your sin on that cross, you, as you put your faith in Christ, and I don't, don't ask me to explain it, it's a mystery, it's beyond time, but it is the most real and true thing. Scripture testifies, experience testifies, I mean just everything testifies that when you put your faith in Christ, somehow that death that he died to sin, you die too, you die with him. It's exemplified in baptism, you're buried with him and you are raised with him in newness of life. And you leave behind you the guilt, the shame, the debt that you owed God. How so? Because Christ dealt, dealt with it all in his body on the cross and through his resurrection and you've been joined and united into that. And so it's a, it is glory, glory all the way. Okay, This is how you deal with division. You get your eyes on Jesus. You let him lift your head, lift your heart. And as you do that, and as we do that, God will keep us and guard us and safely bring us into the next season he has for us. Hallelujah. Amen. Shall we pray? Yes. We'll pray. For I pray, I want to speak to those of you that do not know the Lord. You may have a Christian upbringing. You may, you may have been to church. You may not. But you don't know what I know, in that sense. What I've been talking about is not your experience. It's foreign to you, yeah? You may have a bit of religion, or some ideas or thoughts, but what I'm talking about here is foreign to you. You've never been joined to Jesus, united with him in faith, as as I'm talking about. Let me say this, you can be. You can be. How so? Because he invites all. He gives an open invitation and he says, nobody that comes to me will I turn away. Nobody. He will not reject you. His plan is to bless, restore, forgive and heal you. That is his heart for you. And if you've never known that, I want to urge you and plead with you tonight, come to him, put your trust in him, believe in him. He will never let you down. Turn away from those things that offer so much but deliver so little. Selfishness, sin, just that whole thing of that godlessness, Christlessness. Turn away from that and embrace him and come into newness of life. Do that in your heart. The Bible says to those who received him, Jesus, as Lord, as boss, as king, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And then you can join with us as we take the bread. Break it. Celebrating his body broken for us. He was drinking that wine. Remember his blood shed 
for us. You can do that tonight and it be meaningful for you because you have been joined to Jesus too by faith. You have become suddenly part of this thing that God is doing. Father, we thank you so much that you don't just wrap our knuckles when we do things wrong and say, stop it. But you lift our heads and you lift our hearts so that we can understand again afresh something of your generosity and grace towards us. You, you deliver us from our small, futile thinking that gets so wrapped up in ourselves and you liberate us out to seeing you again and we are gloriously delivered as a result. We thank you that that's how you work with us. We thank you you bring us into something better. You don't just tell us to stop doing things. You show us something better and draw us towards that. And Lord, we want to be drawn towards you, the perfect supreme one, now in our hearts. I pray that as we sing and praise, I pray by the Holy Spirit our hearts would be lifted. I pray, Lord God, we would be moved and touched and affected by your splendor again and in a fresh way. I ask this, Lord. I pray for the moving of the Holy Spirit in powerful ways, Lord, to almost pin us, pin us to where we need to be pinned, Lord, and, and deal with us and do surgery on us again and again, Lord, that our hearts increasingly become caught up with you. I pray these things for your namesake, Lord. I ask them for your namesake. Amen. 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 Let's stand and give him the glory that he deserves.